The title of this evening's talk is Practice Here and There, Practice Everywhere. So, here we are, coming to the end, or towards the end, of our intensive practice period here. Soon uh, to be uh, taking yourself, taking your practice, out there, wherever there is for you. Which for most of you, or maybe all of you, will entail a much longer period of intensive practice with the possibility of wherever you go, wherever you are, there's your practice. I think that many of us come to the end of a a retreat with some thoughts and uh, feelings that aren't really so dissimilar to those that we come into retreat with. For many people, there's a feeling of excitement and readiness to go into an extended period of intensive practice. And sometimes just before it's enter, one enters in, there may be the feeling of, well, I'm just not quite finished yet out here. Just a few more days, maybe another week, so that I can do what needs to be done, and then I'll be ready to go into retreat. And it seems that some of us have similar thoughts when it's time to come out of retreat. Maybe some excitement and some readiness to go out into the larger world. And yet maybe there are such thoughts as, well, just a a little bit more time in retreat. A few more days, a week, a month would be really good to do what needs to be done. And then I'll be finished. And then I'll be ready to come out of retreat. And then I'll be ready to go back out there. And for some people, on either end, the going in and the coming out of retreat, there might be some degree of reluctance, some resistance, M- maybe some fear of the unknown or, or fear of the seeming known, or maybe essentially just fear of change, fear of ending one way and entering into another way. And for some people, there can be a great urgency to go into retreat. I just can't wait, so ready to go into retreat. And then, maybe on the other end, it's something similar. I just can't wait to get out of here. Can't wait to get out of here and be out there, wherever that is. So you might check in with yourself and see if maybe some of these kinds of thoughts and feelings, similar habituated patterns, we could say, within your mind and heart, 
are coming up now <clears throat> at the end of the retreat that maybe you experienced in some way as you were preparing to come here or that you might have felt <clears throat> at the onset of, of this retreat. And of course, we may not feel any anxiety or any other strong mental states in either direction, entering into or coming out of a retreat. There's certainly the possibility that one might feel a clean, clear, open readiness and happiness without any particular expectations or worries about moving on to the next thing, moving on to the next phase and form that life will take. There's a beautiful piece that was written by the American astronaut Russell Swikert regarding his experience uh, traveling in outer space. And I'd like to share this with you. You recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes because now you're no longer inside something with a window looking out at a picture. Now you're out there and there are no frames, there are no limits, there are no boundaries. You're really out there going 17,000 miles an hour, ripping through space, a vacuum. And there's not a sound. There's a silence the depth of which you've never experienced before. And that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery you're seeing and with the speed with which you know you're moving. And you think about what you're experiencing and why. Do you deserve this, this fantastic experience? Have you earned this in some way? Are you separated out to be touched by God, to have some special experience that others cannot have? And you know the answer to that is no. There's nothing you've done to deserve this, to earn this. It's not a special thing for you. You know very well at that moment, and it comes through to you so powerfully that you're a sensing element for humans. You look down and see the surface of that globe that you've lived on all this time, and you know all those people down there. And they are like you. They are you, and somehow you represent them. You are up here as a sensing element, that point out on the end, and that's a humbling feeling. It's a feeling that says you have a responsibility. It's not just for yourself. The mind and heart that doesn't see doesn't do justice to the body. That's why it's there. That's why you're out there. And somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life. And you're out there on that forefront and you have to bring it back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility. And it tells you something about your relationship with this thing we call life. So that's a change. That's something new. And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet and you and all those other forms of life on that planet because you've had that kind of experience. It's a difference. 
and it's so precious. And as we all know, there is a change about to happen. And of course, we're all also aware to varying degrees, aware of the various changes that occurred during this time in retreat. So reflecting on the supports available to you as we begin to make the change out of retreat life into life in the larger world. One change being in the pace of life. At least outwardly, life appears to and feels like it moves a lot faster outside of intensive retreat. And yet, we're supported as we move into the larger world with some understanding from our weeks of practice of how quickly and how incessantly things change within our own body and mind. How quickly and how incessantly things change all around us, even in the slowed-down pace of life in retreat. This understanding, this wisdom, is a great support and a great protection as we make this change from we treat practice into practice in the world. Reconnecting with a larger world in the day-to-dayness or the moment-to-momentness, in the incessant and often fast-paced changes that happen in our daily life. And quite likely you've had some taste of the impersonality of change. You certainly tasted that we can't stop change. And that even though we might try, we can't hold on to anything. And maybe you've tasted how painful it is to try. As mindfulness, concentration, kindness towards yourself and others has developed over these weeks, you've had some glimpse that whatever it is that you experience in the body, the mind, and the heart, that any of these experiences come together because of myriad causes and conditions. In truth, an unfathomable number of conditions coalescing in that moment. And then it, whatever it is, changes quite quickly or just simply disappears. These tastes, this understanding, has a deep and beneficial effect on how we think about things and how we relate in the world. There's more clarity in relationship to our deepest goals and aspirations 
and what we choose to do or not do. There's more clarity in relationship to the choices we make, more connection and clarity in our relationships to others, more clarity in what's important and what's appropriate, what's wholesome and truly respectful and kind. These tastes, this understanding, is a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. Here in retreat, life is pared down. A life of much more simplicity than most of us have outside of retreat. So this is a change from here to there. Life in retreat offers little outside distraction. We sit, we walk, listen to Dhamma talks, you eat, do your yogi job, sleep, and you've spoken just a little every each day or almost every day uh, during the practice meetings, the practice interviews. And within this container of simplicity, you've been encouraged and supported to develop a depth of clarity, of focused attention, and to mindfully pay attention to what occurs within each breath and also what occurs in the body, in the mind, and the heart. And you've been invited to sense, see, and know. Is the mind, the heart, opening to connecting with and receiving the breath or various other occurrences in the body-mind continuum? Or is the attention spaced out, disconnected, separated, or caught, stuck in some physical phenomena or stuck in some thought form? With all of this practice and learning, bringing us closer, closer and closer to sensing, seeing, and knowing what brings suffering and what brings ease, calm, joy, and a sense of well-being. You're learning to recognize, respect, care about, and attend to all of these cycles within your mind, heart, and body. This sensing, seeing, and knowing is also a great support and a great protection as we reconnect with the larger world. Really, we're all so similar. No matter who we are, no matter where we live, no matter our culture, our age, our ethnic background, our color, really we're all just 
variations on themes. We're all totally interconnected, totally interdependent on this small planet that we all share. Sila, virtue, living ethically, respectfully, living harmlessly, wends its way into being the ground of our life quite naturally as our understanding to, in relationship to what brings suffering and what brings ease deepens and blossoms in the mind and heart. As we come to see and know this through intensive practice, it affects how we communicate, how we use language, and it affects our actions. Seeing into our own mind and heart affects and informs the motivation behind the words and the actions that we take out into the world. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit. The habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care and let it spring from love born out of concern for all beings. The possibility of engaging in the refuges and precepts as part of one's daily practice. Maybe beginning the day, chanting them to oneself. This can be quite a powerful aspect of encouraging the purification of our thoughts, our words, and our actions. There's a particular rendition, if you will, of the precepts that was written by a woman named Stephanie Kaza from the Green Gulch uh, uh, Zen Farm that I'd like to share with you. And I'd like to share it because it's really particularly relevant to daily life in the larger world. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to kill. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not take what is not given. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not engage in abusive relationships. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak falsely or deceptively. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harm self or others through poisonous thought or substance. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not dwell on past errors. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak of self separate from others. 
Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not possess anything or form of life selfishly. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harbor ill will toward any plant, animal, or human being. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not abuse the great truth of the three treasures. The three treasures being the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. For me, um, as may also unfold for some of you, over my years of practice in the simplicity of a retreat setting, I've been inspired and motivated to simplify, simplify my own life, to live my daily life in retreat and outside of a retreat setting in a way that serves and supports the process of the purification of the mind and heart. And sometimes this happens through the conscious intention to let go of uh, particular habits of of distraction. And as practice deepens and matures, there's more and more often a letting go, uh, a simplification that unfolds quite naturally with no feeling of forcing anything. We more and more easily and naturally relinquish the habits and the distractions in our life that don't serve this awakening process that we're learning about and that you have each committed yourself to. And it's very often around ordinary, very mundane aspects of our life. So a very ordinary, mundane example from my life. There was a time when I would get into my car to drive somewhere that I would automatically turn on the car radio. And at some point I began to notice, I began to notice it as a distraction And so I decided not to turn it on all the time. I'd begin driving somewhere, and my hand would automatically begin to move towards the radio knob. The force of habit is really incredibly strong. So mindfully, I'd bring my hand back down. And at some point, I began to notice the thought to turn on the radio. Then the choice was available. The choice to or not to. So looking at another change now. In this simple and quiet uh, space of retreat, there may have been some big days or some big events for you during the retreat. 
and especially a big day or a big event for some of you might have been something as totally mundane as laundry day. So for me, uh, there were times in the early years of my practice uh, in long intensive retreats when laundry day would be such a huge addition to my day that I would find myself planning for it or, or just thinking about it before I went to sleep the night before it was supposed to happen. And then it would be the very first thing that would enter into my mind when I woke up that morning. So I suspect some of you might know what I'm referring to. might have happened here. How about the big event of the midday meal? Hmm. What will we have for lunch today? Or even... If you're going to lunch today, I wonder what we'll have for lunch tomorrow. Or remembering what we had for lunch yesterday. Or maybe the big event of a one-on-one practice meeting, a one-on-one practice interview. Maybe such a big event that sometime before or on the way there, you're rehearsing, rehearsing it to yourself. Maybe over and over again. A poem by a man named Nanao Sakake, who was a wandering Japanese uh, Buddhist poet who died some years ago. And he calls this poem a big day. Getting water at the spring. Carrying firewood. Chattering with a neighbor. The sun goes down. A big day. Many years ago, Nanao used to spend time up at the Lam Foundation, which is uh, about 20 20 minutes from here as the crow flies. He'd show up at Lama with his small knapsack and his sleeping bag, and he'd stay there for a few days, and they were always very happy to put him up. And then he'd head out into the mountains with just this, nothing more than what he'd arrived with. And he'd often be gone for a couple of days, or a couple of weeks, actually. And then he'd be back at Lama again. Uh, A dear friend of mine, who was the coordinator at the Lama Foundation during those years, told me a a story of one of the times when Nanao had come in for a day or two from the mountains. And he asked her and another friend if they would like to come out to his camp for dinner uh, in a few days. Well, my friends said they were completely delighted. This was something very special, something that had never, uh, ever been offered before. So on the appointed day and at the right time, uh, my friend and the other invitee found their way out to Nanao's camp, uh, a camping spot, by following his very careful directions. And when they got there, Nanao was there, but there was no food ready or no food in view for dinner. And he told them not to bring anything with them, that it wouldn't be necessary, that there was plenty of food. So my friend thought that maybe they'd made a mistake. Maybe this was the wrong day. But Nanao was really delighted to see them, 
And he welcomed them very heartily and said, Well, now let's go out and find dinner. And my friend said that they walked and they picked and they dug various wild foods. And then they came back to camp and they built a fire and they cooked what needed to be cooked and she said they had an incredibly delicious dinner. She said they finally understood how Nanao could go out into the mountains for days or weeks at a time with almost nothing and come back strong, healthy, and very happy. Once uh, someone in a practice meeting, a practice interview, spoke about the simplicity of life on retreat as having a good taste, she said. We taste it, this good taste, and we take it with us. It wends its way into our life in many small and sometimes big ways. And as we know, Life outside of retreat can be quite complex at times. Our home and family life, our sangha and monastic community life, our work life, our social life. And yet there are ways that we can let go of some of the complexity. And we often do this little by little by little as our practice deepens in and out of retreat. We make choices in relationship to the work we do. We make choices in the way that we spend time with family, friends, partners, and community members. We make choices in how we spend our free time. We really truly have the possibility of simplifying, at least to some degree, every aspect of our life. We really, truly have the possibility of expanding and deepening this good taste that we take with us from the simplicity of retreat life. And of course, there are some complex responsibilities and commitments that we must continue with. The taste of simplicity in retreat has another very beneficial effect on our life outside of retreat. It affects and inspires the way we expend our energy, what we put our energy towards, how we use our energy, even in the midst of complex activity, relationships, and responsibilities. From our experience in retreat life, we, we learn, we see, we come to know more and more clearly when we're off balance in the ways we engage and use our energy. And we take this knowing into our life outside of retreat. As we intuitively, naturally, find ourselves letting go of old habits, old habituated, unskillful ways of being and doing, 
we find ourselves connecting with more skillful, more wholesome ways of being and doing. And we begin to feel more balance within ourself and within our life as a whole. We find, in fact, that we have more energy and more time available for our life to more directly and more clearly be our practice. So simplicity inwardly and outwardly in times of retreat and as we connect or reconnect to a larger world. Simplicity being a great support and a great protection here and there. A great support and a great protection everywhere along this step-by-step journey. So the possibility of considering our whole life as our practice. How can we develop and deepen our practice in the midst of our everyday lives? Really a most important and essential question. And of course the essential ground of this is that we begin to integrate a clear, focused attention and mindful awareness based in kindness into all the dimensions of our being. Making our body, our speech, our actions, our thoughts, our feelings, our relationships, our work, our play, and our creative endeavors all part of our practice. So for instance, we can find many moments throughout our day when we can very simply bring our attention to the sensations of the breath or the body moving or offer maybe a metaphrase out to someone or to ourselves in almost any circumstance, in almost any activity. From this perspective, it's really then not so different from our practice in a retreat setting. Really all of the conditions and all of the relationships in our lives are wonderful mirrors for our practice. The joys and the irritations, the annoyances and the delights, the frustrations and the satisfactions, the pleasant and the unpleasant, the likes and the dislikes, all that we experience in retreat and in life outside of retreat. This is all a mirror for our practice. A woman who sat a retreat that I taught in Israel a number of years ago and who had long before I met her lived in a spiritual community in France that was guided by the philosopher and spiritual teacher Gurdjieff told me a story that's a wonderful mirror of a particular and a difficult life situation in this community being the perfect practice. She said that in this community in France there was an old man and he was a very difficult, irascible old fellow, she said. He was quite messy and argumentative. 
she said he wouldn't cooperate and he wouldn't help with things and basically didn't get along with others in the community. She said that no one liked him very much and he, she said he himself didn't seem to like very many of the people in the community either. <coughs> he tried for a long time to stay in this community but it was very difficult for him as it was uh, also for others. So difficult that he finally left and he went to Paris. He just couldn't bear it anymore. Well, she said that Gurji followed him to Paris and tried to convince this man to return to the community. But the man said he couldn't. He just couldn't. He said it was too hard to be there. Well, then Gurji finally offered him a monthly stipend to come back, which the man couldn't refuse because he was a very poor man. So he did return. And when he arrived, she said, everyone in the community was aghast. <laughs> and they were even more aghast when they found out that he was actually being paid to be there because, in fact, they themselves had to pay to live in this community. So they made a big noise about it. And so Gurdjieff called a meeting. And she said he listened to everyone's complaints and then he laughed. And he said, this man is yeast for your bread. Without him, you would never learn about anger, irritability, patience, the heart of unconditional kindness and compassion. That's why you pay me and I pay him. (laughs) The conditions of our lives and the people in our lives are all part of our practice. They're yeast for our bread, yeast for the purification of our mind and heart, yeast for our awakening, yeast for our liberation. There's one teaching among the 84,000 teachings that the Buddha is said to have offered, where the Buddha uses the metaphor of a mother who has four sons, for the de- uses the metaphor for the development of this mother with four sons, for the development and the flowering of the four divine abidings, metta, karuna, udita, and upekka. Unconditional loving-kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. Each of the sons, because of his particular age and personality and particular karmic manifestations, calls forth from the mother one of these divine abidings. Well, I only have three sons, but they've managed to be some of my very strongest teachers in many, many ways over the years. Our closest people can often be some of our very best teachers, just simply through them being who they are, what they need from us, and what they give to us, and what they show us. An example, my two oldest sons who turned 52 just this past June, 
are identical twins. And they continue, after all these years, they continue to show me, to teach me a relationship that's rare. They're very close friends. And although when they were little guys, they would fight with each other, as children do, but over all these years, they've never really talked about each other or to each other in negative or judgmental ways. No matter what one or the other is feeling, no matter what one or the other has done or not done, and no matter how the other's life is going. And they have been through many ups and downs in their life. And they're not each other's keeper, meaning that they're respectful and not codependent with each other. I think that this is really quite a rare relationship, and I'm sometimes in awe of it, and I continue to learn from it. Every aspect of life is potentially a teaching. Every aspect of life has the potential to reveal the truth to us. And some words from the Buddha. As a bee seeks nectar from all kinds of flowers, seek teachings everywhere. Like a deer that finds a quiet place to graze, seek seclusion to digest all that you have gathered. And so we include it all, and we learn not to cling to any of it. A poem um, from the Turkish, it's uh, of Edib Kensever. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing the name properly, but uh, it's uh, from a Turkish poet called Edib, Edib Kensever, and the translator is Richard Tillinghast. And the poem is called Table. A man filled with the gladness of living, put his keys on the table, put flowers in a copper bowl there. He put his eggs and milk on the table. He put there the light that came in through the window. Sound of a bicycle, sound of a spinning wheel, the softness of bread and weather he put there. On the table, the man put things that happened in his mind. What he wanted to do in life, he put that there. Those he loved, those he didn't love, the man put them on the table too. Three times three makes nine, the man put nine on the table. He was next to the window, next to the sky, he reached out and placed on the table endlessness. So many days he had wanted to drink a beer, he put on the table the pouring of that beer. He placed there his sleep and his wakefulness, his hunger and fullness, he placed there. Now that's what I call a table. It didn't complain at all about the load. It wobbled once or twice, then stood firm. The man kept piling things on.
the key to the door, the linchpin for the wheel of the cart that turn by turn by turn moves along this sacred noble path is first and foremost a strong and clear mindful attention that's deeply grounded in concentration and kindness. And it's true, as some of you have mentioned, there's some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of the focusing power of the mind that you've developed over these weeks. A change from how it is in a retreat such as this, when we reconnect to a larger world. And it's true that there's some change in the depth and sustaining quality of mindfulness and investigation from how it is in a retreat like this as we reconnect with a larger world. And although the same degree and depth of mindfulness, concentration, and investigation is not usually totally sustained outside of a retreat setting, the concentration, mindfulness, and investigative capacities that developed along with the multi-dimensional facets of understanding, of wisdom that have blossomed for each of you in a retreat like this are a great support and a great protection as we connect to a larger world or reconnect to a larger world. There's a change, but we don't lose it. Mindfulness, concentration, investigation, the heart's release that occurs through metta practice and the continued blossoming of wisdom are always available to us. Many years ago at the end of a two-month retreat uh, that I sat with Saida Upandita and two other Burmese monks, I had a conversation with one of the monks. And I asked him if there was any advice that he might uh, give me around taking the practice into the whole of my life. And this was his response. You need to eat to stay alive and be healthy. You need to sleep to stay alive and be healthy. And you need to meditate to stay alive and be healthy. Pretty good advice. And there are some particular ways that I and others, and I'm sure you yourselves, have found uh, to be quite helpful in uh, bringing a simple and yet direct and immediate focus of mindful attention into our lives. One suggestion is that at the end of each hour of the day, take just one or two minutes to stop, be still, and just simply connect with the movement and the simple sensations of a breath, of a few breaths. So however long your waking day is, that could be 15 to 30 minutes of a very directly focused mindful time. 
with, in fact, each of these moments having an effect on the moments that follow. Another way to carry your practice into your daily life is to remember at moments during the day to touch into physical sensations through contact. Very simple. The feet on the ground. The bottom touching the chair. The hands touching each other, hands and legs touching each other. Mindfulness and concentration are immediately connected with and strengthened every time we do this. Remembering to offer some metaphrase to the drivers that are around you when you're caught in traffic or when you're standing in line in the grocery store. I think really the only hard thing about doing these very brief, simple meditation sessions is to remember to do them. It's that what's hard, the remembering to do them. Doing them's very simple and easy. I know some people who put little notes to themselves around their home or uh, the community that they live in or in their workplace or in their study to remind them to check in. So maybe a note on the bathroom mirror. Breath. Dahl says is breath. Maybe a little stand-up note on your desk. Still breathing. Or metta now or here now. There was a a fellow on staff at the Insight Meditation Society when I was resident teacher there who worked in the front office and who had a little small stand-up note on his desk that said, buttocks, (laughs) reminding him to bring his attention to the touch points on his bottom on the chair every now and then. It also brought laughs to anyone who noticed the note. The former director of the Forest Refuge, which is, most of you probably know, the long-term center uh, on the IMS campus, uh, has had programmed his computer to sound the ring of a mindfulness bell every 45 minutes throughout the day to remind him to stop and to check in with his breath for a couple of moments every time that bell would ring. And I found out about it because we were having a meeting in his office and the mindfulness bell went off and we stopped right in the middle of a word and just paid attention to our breath and then we went on with our meeting. I said, what a great idea. Walking meditation. Walking meditation can be a very important and powerful (coughs) aspect of our practice in the world. An important aspect of continuing to connect with and strengthen mindfulness and concentration. Many of us walk at least a few miles just going from place to place through a day, certainly through a week. And we can make some of this walking a time, concertedly make it a time of practice. When I lived at IMS as the resident teacher for staff, my workroom and living space being the same space, same room, was up on the second floor in the main building. 
And because I did many, many practice interviews with staff and also had lots of other meetings, I really didn't have time during the day to do walking meditation. So I decided that every time I went up and down the stairs, which was a few times a day, a number of times a day, this would be my walking practice. And I did this uh, most days. And at one point a staff member came in for his practice interview and he was obviously quite um, agitated and with, it, with some difficulty. <clears throat> he told me that he was very upset, he said, because I was ignoring him. He said that he felt abandoned by me. He said that whenever he passed me on the stairs, I wouldn't even look at him. And he was wondering if I was angry with him. And I told him that going up and down the stairs was my walking meditation time and that I certainly had not abandoned him and that I was not the least bit angry with him. It was just that I was practicing as deeply as I could going up and down the stairs. Well, this completely changed his attitude. (laughs) And he said he was very happy for me and told me he thought it was a great idea. People may not always understand what you're up to when you integrate practice into your life in small ways. Do it anyways. Use your life wisely. And of course, it's really helpful to connect with others who practice. We certainly can see and feel the benefit of this, as some of you have mentioned in a retreat setting. If you're not uh, connected, at least sometimes, with a group, even just a group of two or three, to sit with once in a while, check in and see if there's a sitting group uh, in the area where you live. And if there's not, start one which might mean just simply asking one or two other people that you know who meditate or who would like to learn to meditate to just join you once a week or once every other week. The Buddha, in a conversation with Ananda, one of his chief disciples, spoke about the tremendous importance of the connection with spiritual friends. The Venerable Ananda speaking to the Buddha said, Half this holy life, O Lord, is good and noble friends. Companionship with the good. Association with the good. And the Buddha responded to Ananda saying, Don't say that, Ananda. It's the whole of this holy life. This friendship, companionship, and association with the good. Use your life wisely. Use your energy wisely. Let every moment, as much as possible, be a conscious intent to practice. Meditation is one of the great arts in life, really perhaps the greatest. It can take place anytime, anywhere, when we have the intention to live awake. As we go into the larger world, if we're patient and determined in our practice, it's inevitable that calm, tranquility, kindness, and joy increase. 
it's inevitable that peace increases and that wisdom increases. It's inevitable that our ability to live a beneficial and compassionate life increases. And another Nanao Sakaki poem. If you have time to chatter, read books. If you have time to read, walk into the mountain, desert, and ocean. If you have time to walk, sing songs and dance. If you have time to dance, sit quietly, you happy, lucky idiot. And closing the talk this evening with one more poem. (laughs) And this is from the Native American poet, Joy Harjo. She calls this Eagle Poem. To pray, you open your whole self to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you. And know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know, except in moments steadily growing, and in languages that aren't always sound, but other circles of motion. Like eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, circled in blue sky, in wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this, and breathe, knowing we are truly blessed, because we were born and die soon within a true circle of motion. Like eagle rounding out the morning, inside us. We pray that it will be done in beauty. In beauty. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. 